0: Welcome to the latest edition of the Moses and Methuselah podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, and with me today, as in every edition of these podcasts, is my friend and professional sparring partner, the author and fund manager, Peter Simon. In this series of 10 podcasts, we will be discussing a number of the big themes that are currently preoccupying the financial markets, in which we have both been professionally involved for the best part of four decades. A tour of duty that prompted us to choose very much tongue-in-cheek the title of this series. Are we wise or simply old and set in our ways? We leave you to decide. So Peter, this week we've decided to step back from the uh, always interesting world of finance and business to look at some uh, broader themes that have uh, been influential in our lives and I think have lessons for today to some extent. And we've decided to devote a couple of episodes of the podcast to talking about books that have been a great influence on us during the course of our lives. Uh, I'm going to go first, and I've chosen uh, a book which was originally actually a television series called Civilization by Kenneth Clark, uh, Lord Clark, as he later became. And you've chosen a book by uh, Otto von Habsburg called Shrunken World, in uh, translation at least. Uh, and that'll be, it. there's some interesting actually issues that connect the two books, but we'll talk about that when we come on to the next episode. So I'm going to kick off by talking about this book, Civilization, as I say, which sprung from a TV program which was released in 1969. So that's actually 50 years ago. And I'm still of an age that I can remember the impact it made on me.
1: At that time, I was a 15 year old. Jonathan, very nice to be back. I agree that it's a good idea that we raise our discussions away from financial markets for a while. And I'm very glad that you've chosen Civilization by Kenneth Clark, because you and I, being Moses and Methuselah and being about the same age, it had the same profound effect on me as it did on you And I think that what we should underline to anyone who's interested is that this work, which is a work of art and a work of literature and a work of history, should be consulted on a regular basis so that the underlying message of civilization, which is precisely that, civilization, should be retained and not lost, especially in today's fast-moving age where society is changing, morals are changing, rules and regulations are changing, the significance of man is changing. So well chosen. Let me ask you at the beginning, why do you think was civilization actually made in the first place, Jonathan?
0: Yes, well it's an interesting story. Um, And uh, it was originated as a TV series, as I said. It was actually commissioned by uh, David Attenborough, the well-known naturalist, who at that time was working in television and was controller of the new BBC channel. Uh, It's hard to imagine in those days there was only about three channels you could watch, but that was the case back then. Uh, They just launched BBC Two, which was the second channel uh, produced by the BBC, obviously enough. And David Attenborough was looking around for good content with which to launch or to help uh, drive forward the newly launched uh, channel. And he came up with this idea that one of the features of BBC Two, which was not uh, available to uh, its original channel, BBC One, as it now is, uh, was the fact that you could film in much better quality uh, colour uh, TV series. And so he uh, wanted to make a, a special feature out of the, the high quality colour viewing you could do. And he came up with the idea of doing a series about great artworks. Uh, and he talked to Kenneth Clark about this. And Kenneth Clark was a well-known art historian, uh, arts administrator, and art critic. And he'd already done quite a lot of television programs uh, for the independent television before then. Uh, and so they came up with this idea of doing this almost like a kind of travelogue around the great uh, artworks of Western Europe and to a certain extent the US Uh, to talk about civilization within that kind of historical context. And they managed to spin this into 13 individual programmes. They're still available, you can download them, and they're still as fresh today as they were then. Uh, But it was originally an attempt to help show the power of television to both to uh, illustrate the power of colour TV, but also to uh, tackle something which had not really been done that well before, which was to explain or try to explain art in its historical context, uh, and uh, for people at the time who were looking for perhaps some uh,
1: enlightenment in what was rather a, becoming rather a grim decade, and it seems to me that it was quite successful. If you look at the episodes today, which you can find on YouTube, what strikes you is the the color, the colors, the beauty that comes out through the colors, and um, through the centuries. And you can compare it with more modern times when colours in art and architecture changed, especially in architecture, which became much more drab. But we'll talk about that later. Um, Who was Kenneth Clark in the sense that, I think if I remember rightly, you mentioning that he was purveyor of the Queen's pictures. Is that right? That's right. Yes, he had a, a a very precocious early career. He
0: was uh, he was educated at a good school, Winchester, which is the school I went to, uh, and also at Oxford where he got a a, a not it didn't get a first class degree, but he uh, spent a lot of time uh, studying art while he was there. And then he had this sort of meteoric early career as a arts administrator. He was uh, appointed as the uh, youngest director of the National Gallery, having spent three years at the Ashmolean Museum in Oxford, where he was in charge of that for three years, still in his 20s at that time. And then he became the surveyor of the Queen's Pictures at the age of 30, which is an extraordinary thing to have done, particularly. And throughout his life, he combined uh, doing his artistic uh, criticism and histories and and writing uh, with a number of other administrative jobs, which he was remarkably industrious and... uh, well organized uh, individual, it had a kind of mixed reputation. Everybody knew he was clever. He had lots of friends and social contacts, uh, but he was always, always seen as rather a reserved figure. And people of his, his colleagues often didn't know what he was thinking at the time he was thinking them. Uh, and so he has this kind of curious mixed reputation. But as a communicator and as an art historian, he was, uh, he was among, I suppose you could say, the real elite performers in that field in his time. And when, he, by the time he came to make this program, it was much later in his career. It was some uh, 30 years after he'd uh, been in charge of the National Gallery. Uh, and he had the full range of experience then to draw on. And of course, this uh, wonderful ability to convey it in uh, in language and with the accompaniment of music and so on, and the visual uh, qualities that the colour TV could bring to it, to do this kind of effectively kind of panoramic view of civilization from the uh, early uh, uh, post-Roman Empire time, right up until 1914, where he stopped.
1: What I found was that however much one thinks one knows about art and history, and however interested one is in these things, and however well-traveled one is, and however many nice things one has seen, I found that this program does make one quite humble in terms of realising how little one actually really does know. Not only in terms of the content of that programme, but also in terms of the way that he brings it across, which is quite clipped but clear at the same time in a relatively old-fashioned vernacular but very erudite at the same time. Above all, very clear. So what this programme did for me was to make me realise how much there is still to learn in terms of history and art and why art exists and in terms of civilization. What did the programme do for you, Jonathan? Well, I think for me it did uh, very much what
0: I think it did for a whole generation of us, which was to open our eyes, as you say, to the sheer amount of art of good wonderful art that you could experience and enjoy uh, that was available and if you remember it was only in the 1960s we're talking about late 1960s so it was only the start of a period where you could actually uh, you know more people could travel more freely around to to look at these things Um, you could see them in books but you didn't actually to actually go and see them uh, was a more of a undertaking than it is now and indeed, it spawned a whole uh, generation of uh, interest in art galleries, in museums, particularly in France and Italy, which are at the center of these programs. Uh, and a whole generation of people in, in the UK for certain, both young and old, uh, traveled abroad in increasing numbers to look at some of the arts or works that, uh, that Kenneth Clark had described. And of course, it was essentially a kind of travelogue because he did go to all these places. He could stand in Rome, in Florence, and so on. He could go to Versailles, which he didn't much like, by the way. Uh, Go to all these different places, uh, great cathedrals, Chartres, Veselay, and so on, uh, and talk about them in situ. Uh, And okay, this was a rather kind of, in some ways forbidding uh, character because he turned up in his, you know, rather old-fashioned tweed suits at the time. And he had this incredible amount of knowledge, but he had this gift of popularizing it. And I think that's really what it did for me. It encouraged me both to go out looking at art in different places, go and see the originals, but also to see them in a different light. Uh, thanks to, if you like, his sort of expert guidance. His, his, his knowledge, of course, was immense, encyclopedic, uh, but also the fact that he was able to deliver it in this very kind of, uh, if you like, modern way, uh, very accessible. Uh, it's no accident that civilization spawned a whole series of successor programmes of that kind. Um, you know, multi-part series where you had a, a narrator, a knowledgeable narrator to guide you through. Uh, David Attenborough, you know, life on earth being one of the things that actually followed on when they saw how successful the, the civilization series had been.
1: The timing of this in the 1960s, I think is very interesting, maybe subtle, maybe it was done on purpose, maybe but it was done by coincidence. But if you remember those decades, the 60s, the 70s, when it came to Italy, for example, which is obviously at the forefront of this program, as well as the the Greek and then the Roman influence, Italy was very much in the sights of the Soviet Union. So the Soviet Union would try to influence Italy from a political point of view, nurturing the Communist Party, and so on, and of course the program of the Soviet Union was to go exactly in the opposite direction from the direction which Kenneth Clark was trying to underline, really to go against the historical significance of the message that Kenneth Clark is bringing in. And therefore for him to come out with this civilization as a pushback against the influences of the Soviet Union and the communist thinking throughout the whole of Central Europe, I thought was very courageous, very good, and very pertinent. For example, you, you know that if you compare that which Kenneth Clark is showing us in terms of the architecture, let's take Florence as an example. Florence, which was the epicenter of the Renaissance and so on, if you take that and compare it with the drab and, above all, the godless architecture of what was happening beyond the Iron Curtain, then it does portray an enormous difference. And the fact that, on the one hand, you had communism, which in the end failed, and on the other hand, you had everything in that program which continues today and is eternal and immortal I think it was a very good timing Um, how in the old days all these beautiful works of art were done in the glory of God whereas not only today but also at the time on the other side of the Iron Curtain it was quite the opposite that was taking place. So I think that today with regard to Europe I think it's very good that one is reminded of everything that Kenneth Clark produces in his, in his programme because that is the, the basics, those are the basics that Europe should be founded on. And I think it's very important that the young people should be reminded of this. So in my opinion, and I don't know whether it is part of a school curriculum, but I think that this work should definitely p- be part of the curriculum of schools up and down the country.
0: Well, that's a very interesting idea, Peter, and I'm sure to some extent it is in some schools. But uh, I mean, there has been a revival of interest in this particular book and this series because it is now available through uh, you know, streaming and so on. And on the BBC iPlayer, you can find it as well. Uh, so you're right, absolutely. And it is, in, in a sense, it is a celebration of the highest achievements of uh, certain civilizations at certain times—it's very Eurocentric, of course. Uh, by his own admission, he hasn't talked about China or India or, or even the Middle East, or uh, and even Spain. It, it doesn't get much of a mention. So it's very much a particularly focused Eurocentric and and uh, kind of Franco-Italian centric focus in the main. Um, though of course the UK, the Netherlands, and Germany get get mentions as well. Um, so it is a celebration of, of civilization, but I think it's. It's also because it brings history to life, it turns out that using great works of art to illustrate uh, periods in history is a way of making them much more accessible and more interesting to, uh, to young people. So I think that's actually a very good idea, the one you've, you've just said. I mean, the irony is, of course, that you're right. In the late 60s, when this program appeared, it was a curious time because we had the, if you like, the swinging 60s. But the same year this appeared was also the year of the Woodstock Festival uh, and the Vietnam War, you know, was, was coming to a protests were coming to a peak. Uh, And we were heading into a period of inflation. So it was quite a kind of potentially becoming a rather a grimmer period after the, uh, if you like, the consumer society of the late 50s and 60s. Um, And Kenneth Clark, of course, himself, while a great celebrant of of art and uh, arts achievements, he was actually quite gloomy about the 20th century. He was... uh, you know, in, by nature, something of a little bit of a pessimist. He stopped the program in 1914 because he didn't want to talk about modern art. <laughs> he didn't want to talk about a lot of the things that are happening in modern art. You know, the uh, the concrete uh, structures and so on. Um, he was a big fan of Henry Moore, the sculptor, but he wasn't a great fan of of the most modern art. He was a traditionalist in that sense, and that very much comes through, I think, in some of his comments. You know, and the way he chose the subjects he chose about. But you're absolutely right, the central message of the importance of civilized values, if you like, was absolutely central to uh, his view of the world and one I think that we need to maintain, if only because, as you say, the contrast with other countries and other regimes where the individual is most definitely not at the center of uh, society's uh, uh, organization, uh, could not be more marked.
1: I'm tempted to ask you a question which maybe is the wrong question, but I'll ask you anyway. The question is this. From your point of view, what was good and what was bad about this programme? I'm hesitating because you can throw the question back at me and say, how can there be anything bad about this programme? It is educational, fascinating, very high quality. But nonetheless... Is there anything there that you disagree with or that you think shouldn't have been there? And by extension to this question, let me ask you, what was your favorite part of this program, Jonathan? Right. Well, that's a, that's a very... The last part is, is the hardest
0: question, actually, I think, because there are so many good episodes. Some, I think, by uh, his own admission of the program makers have uh, worked better than others. Um, and clearly... I mean Kenneth Clark had his own prejudices about art, things he liked and things he didn't like, and uh, some of those we may share or we may not and, and and the whole idea about it was he did deliberately set out to be, you know, provocative in places. So he was like he was he was almost kind of journalistic in tone and he he used that expression. He knew he was taking chances, he was making generalizations, he was trying to keep people interested as well, and to be a little provocative. And of course you and the whole point of being provocative is that it invites people to you know, to disagree with them or to, you know, to take uh, views about that. So, for example, you know, I have mentioned already he didn't like Versailles. OK, well, that's a point of view. Some people think it's impressive. Uh, he thought the whole thing was very stifling and uh, uh, oppressive and the kind of, you know, society that went on there, he was, didn't have a taste for it at all. He's quite rude about, um, you know, some artists who I quite like. He's quite rude about Hogarth, for example. He says he's just a bit of a muddle, frankly. And, <laughs> and he has his own favourites, which, as we know, are... Particularly the uh, the Renaissance uh, artists who kind of achieved, if you like, uh, a kind of summation of certain values that haven't really been matched since, and also of course of the great uh, you know Rome in the in the 16th uh, century, the great period of um, the Grand Popes, Michelangelo, Leonardo, Donat you know, uh, Brunelleschi, and so on. I think that was his favorite program, the one that dealt with the making of St. Peter's and and all those wonderful things in Rome, Bernini. Who I think it's probably, if I had to make a pick, my one of my most favourite artists is Benigni. Some of the the sheer magical artistry of the statues he created uh, have never been matched, in my view. Um, so, what, what was good and what was bad about it? Well, I think what was good about it was the sheer breadth of within his narrow compass of you know Franco Italian centred art, his ability to you know uh, cover from architecture through. Uh, paintings through to the written word, and he talks a lot about uh, progresses in literature and so on. Uh, that was all wonderful, I think, and some of the way that they the programmes use music to sort of track across a painting. They didn't just give you a, a simple snapshot. They would pan across a view, across a building, for example, or uh, in Rome around St Peter's or they would actually scan just across the detail of a painting to make you see more clearly some of the things in it, accompanied by music of the time. That was all wonderful and I think innovative at the time. Uh, What was not so good? Well, I mean, he's a character of his time and some of his views are a little out of date, perhaps, I think. And, uh, you know, he comes across as a rather, um, as I say, undoubtedly an elitist in the way he approaches this. And some people find that a little difficult. I'm not so sure I have a problem with that. and his his delivery was a little stiff in places, and as people pointed out, you wouldn't make a television programme now without having your teeth done. You know, he had a, much, much comedy on the time that he had sort of snaggly teeth which hadn't been fixed, and uh, you know you wouldn't be a TV presenter now without having spent a lot of money on uh, exquisite cosmetic uh, dental surgery. So I suppose you can quibble about that sort of thing, and you can quibble about the choice of subjects, things he didn't he didn't cover, um, but I don't think overall. I mean, it stood the test of time because it was, I think, a fantastic achievement. To keep this up over 13 separate episodes, um, you know, to travel, they went travel to more than 100 different locations, um, and to write a script that actually worked with the images,
1: you know, it was all very carefully planned. Um, that was a great achievement, I think. And presumably, it was a very expensive exercise. Do you know where the money came from? Well, the money came from the BBC, Um but one of the things that David Attenborough did, I mean, he had a
0: budget of so much, you know, to he could spend over his the, the number of hours he had to broadcast from. And uh, one of the things he decided, which was innovative again, he decided to show it twice a week. I mean, there weren't that the, the number of hours you could broadcast in the UK at that time was limited. Uh, there were only so many hours of the day during which you were able to to transmit programs. Again, what a contrast with now, where you you've got uh, you know hundreds of channels broadcasting twenty four hours a day. Uh, and he came up with the idea of actually broadcasting it twice each week because he thought it would be that sufficiently popular and he could reduce his cost per episode by doing that uh, by repeating a programme, which had, again hadn't been really done before. Um, so it was a huge investment, the biggest and I think most expensive programme they ever made, the BBC. Uh, but it worked because um, you know it spawned uh, a, an audience of about a million watched, I think, at the time, and there could have been more. And then it was exported to almost every other country in the world. And they made money out of that and the book of the series sold over one and a half million copies that made money for them as well. So the whole thing turned out to be a very successful commercial enterprise and as I said established a kind of template for uh, other programs of the kind like uh, Life on Earth or um, uh, Bronowski's Ascent of Man. I don't know if you watched that one as well. It was very interesting about science because of course when they made this monster program about art all the other BBC executives came running around saying, well, we must make one about science now, because if you're going to do art, you know, you've know you got to do science as well. So it did spawn a whole series of other uh, you know, successful commercial um, uh, TV programmes at the time. But nobody else, I don't think, would have made that programme at the time. They couldn't have committed such a big budget. So it was, if you like, a testament to what state broadcasting at its best can do, or publicly funded state broadcasting at its best can do.
1: Yes, and today, of course, the world is quite different. But I think we all have our preferences in terms of art and architecture. Some people like Baroque, other people like Renaissance, and so on. Personally, I am a great fan of Renaissance, not only as far as art is concerned, but also as far as architecture is concerned, and especially as far as music is concerned. That's a purely personal personal taste I seem to remember that Kenneth Clark said that Michelangelo's David was in so many words the greatest contribution to humankind I would tend to agree with him but that's because of my own penchant towards Renaissance and my great admiration uh, for Michelangelo and i I've been to Florence endless times in my life and it always finds me gravitating towards that work of art. Obviously not the one that's on the square because that's a copy, but the one that's in the Academia Museum. So that is for me, if you like, the be all and end all. Let me tell you first of all, one thing which is quite funny and then let me ask you a last question as we come to the end. I asked my son today, have you ever heard of Kenneth Clark? And he said, of course I've heard of Kenneth Clark. So I said, well, who was Kenneth Clark? He said, he was a Tory politician and he used to be Chancellor of the Exchequer. And he's now retired from Parliament in Westminster. So I reminded him that that was another Kenneth Clark spelt differently. But it's interesting how that Kenneth Clark is more prevalent in the mind of the interested young people who look at current affairs. And I hope that the other Kenneth Clark, the one we're discussing now, will come back to the fore and make the young people focus on programmes like Civilization. Now, let me ask you to end this, having told you what my favourite part was, What was your favorite part, if you have one? If you didn't have a favorite part, that's in a way just as good because it means you like most of the program of the contents. But do you have a favorite part in that program, Jonathan? Well, I think I do have a favorite part and I think it reflects
0: my own interest. I mean, one of the key points that uh, uh, Kenneth Clark made, I mean, he's very good at this, I think, how he, uh, if you like, traverses from the early... Uh, periods he discusses you know the middle ages for example which is very much centered around uh, the church towards the renaissance where we have you know man humanity being put if you like at the center of people's concept of civilization obviously within a still a a period when people you know believed in uh, christianity was uh, central to this whole thing Uh, but the way that the focus of artists changed from uh, you know religious subjects to uh, specifically human subjects and uh, Michelangelo's David being I think why Kenneth Clark thinks that's the apotheosis of, uh, of the Renaissance in a way or, or that period rather the, the later Renaissance uh, because it focuses on you know man as the centre of uh, society uh, alongside within a, within a religious context uh, but my, as I said my period is, is my favorite period is definitely uh, Rome, uh, Bernini, St Peter's and all those wonderful things that went on there uh, and Later, Caravaggio as well uh, comes into that picture. I love those uh, pictures. And uh, that's really where my heart would be. I mean, one of the effects of this program was that I actually went to spend uh, a few months living in Italy uh, as a student at, uh, at the university in Perugia. Uh, as It's almost a direct consequence of the, of the civilization program, the way it fired me up. I went there and spent a few months studying Italian language and culture, a little bit more... Um, culture of, a, of a, you know <laughs> of an artistic kind than uh, actually studying in the in the university itself. Uh, but it was wonderful. I went to all these places. I went to Urbino, another f- fabulous place I love a lot, uh, and Florence, as you say, and uh, Rome, uh, and uh, even Naples. And uh, it was quite the most wonderful period, uh, one of the most best periods of my life. And that I owe entirely to this uh, uh, this wonderful series, which inspired me to do that. and. Um, you know, I've always loved those things ever since. So that would be my favourite period. But others are wonderful too. And uh, I, I can't
1: commend it enough. Well, there's only one thing for it, which is that we need to take our wives on an Italian holiday and to go around all these places, Perugia, Urbino, Florence, and all the others, because it's it's eternal. It's always there, Mantua. And there are so many hidden gems and it's very useful and very... Inspiring and refreshing uh, to see these things again and to think about them as we as we have more time at our age. We have more time to think about these things. Of course,
0: then you're absolutely right. And of course, the only drawback now is that you know if you go to Florence uh, many times of the year, you're going to find the were word. until the pandemic, uh, there were you know you'd be you'd be there in a cast of millions. And getting round the Uffizi, uh, for example, is a bit of a marathon. It's very, very difficult to do, to fight your way past, you know, uh, lots of other people who are going there for the same reason. So it's it's not quite the same experience as it, perhaps it was. But um, I did go to Perugia with my wife, fine enough, uh, about two years ago. And uh, we visited uh, uh, one or two places where we've been before. And it was absolutely lovely. And uh, uh, it is best, nowhere better, really. Let's hope that we can go on doing that quite soon. Again, as you say, it's... Uh, not as easy as it was, but on the other hand, uh, you know, living here in Oxford, there has been one hidden benefit of, of the pandemic. If you live here, which is that we haven't had the normal invasion of tourists, uh, which, uh, of course, very helpful for the city's economy. Uh, but if you're a local resident, does mean that it can get quite crowded in the in the central parts of Oxford, and you have to enjoy them as as you can.
1: Well, you've got to play the cards that are dealt.
0: Absolutely, and uh, we have got to have a some sort of. Um, Optimism about the future. I do think that's very important too. We have to uh, retain that uh, that confidence that uh, somehow this, uh, as you say, the civilization could find itself a way to deal with these big uh, global threats that we have, um, which I dare say we're going to be talking about in the next podcast when we talk about the book you've chosen, which is uh, about uh, some of these grand global issues that the world is facing. And we have to devise a way to uh, to fix them. And we can only do that if we approach it in a suitably uh, humble and civilised
1: way. Well, I look forward to the next time round, when we'll talk about the book that had the greatest influence on me. And thank you very much for this very interesting one today. And let's hope that the next one will be as interesting. Jonathan, thank you very much indeed. You have been listening to the Moses and Methuselah podcast, hosted by Jonathan Davis and Peter Silen. These podcasts are independently edited and produced. You can subscribe to them on most leading podcast channels or by signing up on the Moneymakers or Eminem podcast website. Please note that these podcasts are provided for information and background only and should not be regarded as constituting professional investment advice.